And let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the 16th Psalm. Psalm 16. This is one of my favorites because the message in it is really one of confidence and security and very certain hope. It's a very unique Psalm, Psalm 16, because it's prophetic. And in it, David is referring to Jesus Christ, even though this is almost a thousand years before the incarnation. So the Spirit had to give David some special insight, some special wisdom about what was going to happen, that the presence of the Lord was going to come down to earth. And because of that, because of the way the psalm reads, there's been a lot of debate over the centuries about um, who this psalm is spoken by, in a sense. Some scholars believe that the whole psalm has the voice of Christ. In other words, that Christ is speaking through David, that he's expressing the feelings of his human nature as it relates to his sufferings and his victory over death in the grave, and, and then being exalted to the right hand of God. So, so some people read this as, this is the voice of Christ. Other people see it as David speaking about the confidence and security that he has in the Lord, and then showing his understanding of the victory that Christ would bring and the resurrection that would take place, and the, the uh, understanding, especially in verse 10, that only through Christ uh, would we be able to say this. So, so we've got Christ's voice on one hand and David's voice on the other. Now, one thing we have to remember is that even though these are David's words, and um, that he writes this is clearly his psalm, that Scripture is clear that the Holy Spirit inspired every single word of Scripture. So even if David is writing this personally, and this is his feeling, it's reasonable, because the Spirit inspired the words, that David had gotten this insight from the Holy Spirit and was able to understand what Christ would feel and would go through. Now, we can read it either way, and I encourage you this week to do some study of your own and ask the Lord to reveal to you uh, what your conviction is as you read this, because either way, uh, there's still truth here, and either way, we can still apply this to our lives. My own personal conviction is that David is speaking here, and that he's speaking very personally, and he's drawing from this unique spirit-led discernment about Christ to come to a point of very deep and unwavering confidence in the Lord in his own heart. Now, we know that David didn't lack for confidence, and David didn't lack for conviction or faith, but you remember our study from last week that there were certain times in David's life where he wasn't exactly putting all his confidence in the Lord. And remember last week's study, we saw him in a very different frame of mind. He was angry, he was frustrated with God, he was confused, he was scared. We, we might even say uh, in that passage that we studied that he was lacking in confidence in the Lord because the Lord had disciplined Uzzah and by extension disciplined the people for being disrespectful with the Ark of the Covenant. And then we saw the contrast to Obed-Edom and how he had the presence of the Lord in his house for three months and he was blessed. So there was a real contrast to David's life. What was normal for him and what was by and large the majority of his belief is what we see here in Psalm 16. Whether he was in crisis or whether he was uh, facing a difficult decision or whether he was being used to the Lord in a powerful way. David constantly desired to be in the presence of the Lord. And he had great confidence and great faith. Really, unlike any other person in Israel at that time, David had his trust and his confidence in the Lord. 
And when we read the words that are here, we, we know that this is reflective of his heart. This is what he knew. This is what he believed. This is what he trusted in. This is how he thought and he lived. He had great confidence in the Lord. Now, as believers this morning, this needs to be reflective of how we live. And it's all because of what we just celebrated at the table. It's all because of Christ. The work of Christ is sufficient. The work of Christ has transformed our lives. And because of God's presence and His power and His sacrifice and His faithfulness and His sufficiency, there really is no room for the person that trusts in Christ, listen now, to live a weak, insecure, uncertain, shaky life that is lacking in joy and contentment. Now I say that very carefully and I ask the Lord to really guard my words this morning because I don't want that to sound critical. It's not. But really, when we understand what Christ has done and when we celebrate this table and His work and His sacrifice and His grace and His forgiveness, when we embrace that and understand that and believe in that, it completely changes the way we think. But the enemy constantly works hard to undermine that, doesn't he? He constantly fights against that. And we th see throughout the book of Job and throughout examples of how, uh, in Scripture of how he attacks and lies and discredits God's word and how he constantly is trying to shake the foundation of our faith. And he's fanatical about that. He wants to demoralize us and push us to grasp uncertainty rather than to grasp the knowledge that we have of Christ and to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That's what God calls us to do, but the devil is constantly going to undermine and try to keep us off balance spiritually. And he uses very creative ways to do that. He wants us to be unsteady and distracted and unsure and unconvicted and chronically discouraged. Think about some of the ways that he does that. When we're in trials, he twists our thinking. He tells us that we should assume that because difficulty has come, that the Lord really doesn't care. Instead of seeing that trials are the time where God shapes and refines us, where he shows us his power and his sufficiency, and where he makes us more complete. He takes relationships and he uses people to hurt us and discourage us and dissuade us. He especially loves to use members of the body of Christ to accomplish this because he wants to build resentment and disunity and he wants to fracture the church just like he wants to break up every single marriage. Christian or unchristian, he does not care. The devil does not love unity unless it's unity against Christ. So he will use anything he can relationally to try to fracture the church. So instead of loving one another and forgiving one another and laboring together for the work of Christ, there will be some kind of problem and some kind of disunity so we won't be focused. And then he keeps us very busy. Not with the things of the Lord, but with the trivial. And he limits our time in God's presence, or at least he tries to, because he knows when we're in the presence of God, if we've studied for eight or nine weeks, how confident we get and how much power we get from being in the presence of the Lord, 
but he tries to help us justify that time away from the Lord by promoting our thoughts of self-importance and selfishness and just how busy we need to be to maintain our image. And then he never stops telling us that the word of God is unreliable. He never stops taunting us that our beliefs are uneducated. He never stops saying that giving our lives to Christ is unreasonable and that the end of time, when everything ends, that our convictions will be unsubstantiated. Though you never notice that the devil ever tells us, here's what's going to happen in the end, and here's how you'll be rewarded for following me. Every gain that he tempts us with is a short-term gain. He never says, if you just follow me, your life will be fulfilled for all eternity. The devil never speaks about eternity. Why? Because he knows what his eternity is. The Lord always points us forward. We just sang about it. Oh, glorious day. When he comes back, we'll see him face to face. We hope in that. We rejoice in that. We're confident in that, knowing what the end is. Now, keep all that in mind. I know that's a long introduction. But keep all that in mind when we look at Psalm 16. Because the dissimilarity of all those deceptions of the enemy stand in such stark contrast to the confidence and assurance and certainty of David. And even after studying this text many times and learning some of it by memory and and teaching it often, I was still struck by the way that these promises that are here are so powerful and so victorious. There is probably no other psalm that inspires confidence like this one. So no matter what you're dealing with or how shaky your faith may feel right now or, or how frustrated and weakened you feel this morning by the enemy's deception and his lies, when you read Psalm 16, your heart has to rejoice. I mean, it just has to. I'd encourage you even to memorize some of this. I've memorized three or four of the verses, but I, I think our whole church should know verses 5 to 11 by heart. Because when the devil comes and he tempts and when spiritual insecurity threatens, and when life and people just start to overwhelm you, you can always come back to Psalm 16, 5 to 11, and say, the Lord is good. Now let's read it. Psalm 16, 1. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good beside you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And in your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Now, in the past few months, we've been studying the presence of the Lord not only in relation to our understanding of his power and our experience of his power, but also in response to how people respond to him. We've seen fear, we've seen reverence, we've seen the understanding of complete unworthiness, we've seen an awareness of his awesomeness, 
and the overwhelming glory of the cloud. We've seen the reality of judgment. We've seen the joy of his leading and his fulfillment and his blessing. What we need to understand about God's presence, if we haven't already, and what we'll understand over the next few weeks as we kind of come to a close with this study, is that God's presence always elicits a response. Either it's humility and worship and trust, or it's arrogance and rejection and denial. In fact, one of the main reasons why we know that Jesus Christ is the true Savior and Lord is that absolutely no one has an indifferent reaction to him. People can look at Hinduism and Buddhism. They say, well, that's kind of something I don't understand. doesn't really make sense to me. I don't really have a strong response about it. And, and what's the big deal? People can even take a, a religion like Islam and they can look at the more mainstream Islam, which is a statement in itself, but they can look at that and say, well, I understand that, that there are radical factions, but it really doesn't relate to me, and I don't necessarily have a very strong reaction to it. People can look at humanism and say, well, that's really a philosophy that's, that's about man. It doesn't really have a God at the center of it. So, uh, I don't know, I'm just kind of whatever. When you say the name Jesus, everyone has an opinion. And everyone has a belief. And everyone has an argument. Now there's a lot of innocuous talk about God. But when you say the name that is above all names, you can literally see it in people's eyes. Just try it in a conversation with somebody you don't know very well. Just say, I believe in Jesus Christ, and watch their eyes. There will either be a warmth and a love there, and you'll know that you're talking to a family member, or, or there will be some kind of narrowing of the eyes and some kind of skepticism, or there will be flat-out hostility. There's always a reaction to Jesus. Now look at verses 1 to 6, because this is what David's talking about. He says, not only do I have a personal conclusion about my life and about my convictions, but there is an end result of those who reject the Lord. He says, first of all, very insightful in verse 2, that there's no good besides the Lord. The phrase there literally means there's no joy, there's no fulfillment, there's nothing to look forward to apart from the Lord. But then he contrasts it in verse 4 to those who chase false gods. And he says, those who chase false gods don't understand that. Many people keep pursuing what is temporary and what is powerless in an attempt to get what they want and to justify the rejection of the Lord. And he even uses the phrase barter. They barter after more gods. The word there means that they pay a price in exchange for getting what they want. So they keep chasing after things that will bring, in their mind, self-fulfillment as kind of a temporary fix so they won't have to deal with Christ. And then he goes on to say, and they pour out drink offerings. The drink offering was the offering that was sacrificed to God that was established to represent his completed work of atoning for sin. It's kind of an advanced picture of this table. It's an advanced picture of what Christ did in shedding his own blood as the final and complete sacrifice for sin. It was 
pouring out the wine, pouring out the drink, pouring out the offering to God to show that he had finished the work of atonement. But he says in verse 4, the people are taking it and they're chasing after false gods and they're taking drink offerings of blood and they're pouring out, kind of mocking God. Now God in Scripture, in Leviticus 6, had strictly prohibited the people from touching the blood and he had strictly prohibited anybody from ever drinking the blood. That's why, and one of the main reasons, why this table is a memorial. It's a picture it is a symbol that the wine or the juice that we drink does not literally transubstantiate into the blood of Christ because in Leviticus 6, God said, do not drink the blood. So what happened is that in devil worship, in the worship of these false gods, they would actually drink the blood and then they would pour it out and kind of mock God. And God says, I'm not accepting that. Those drink offerings are fake to me. My drink offering, the one you offer to me, shows that I'm the one that brings atonement. I'm the one that brings satisfaction. And David understands that. And he says, these people, look at verse 4, they'll never be spiritually satisfied. In fact, their sorrows will be multiplied. It'll go far beyond disappointment to judgment because they reject God. And again, he's convicted here that not only are we in, in, in inadequate, but that the Lord is the one that is the cup. He's the one that's an inheritance. And we see that here in verse 5, and that's an allusion again to the work of Christ. I hope you're with me. I know that's a little confusing. Romans 8 tells us that if Christ is in us, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus, this is a quote, from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit which dwells in you. Listen, for you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Look back at verse five. Christ has poured out his blood as the drink offering, as the final sacrifice for atonement, he becomes our cup, there's symbolism there, and he becomes our inheritance. And when we receive Christ, Romans 8 tells us that we become sons, we become inheritors. And here's the miraculous thing, we become joint inheritors with Christ. He did all the work, and we reap all the joy from it. Now when David recognizes that, as he says here, he recognizes that it's only through Christ. The Lord is my portion of my inheritance and my cup. That's why he can go on to say in verse 6, the lions have fallen to me in present pleasant places, and my heritage or my place as a child of God and an heir with Christ is beautiful to me. Then he comes down to his confidence. Because of this, because of this fact, because of the work of Christ, which he's telling us about a full century, a full millennium before Christ ever comes, he says, something's going to happen. The Lord is going to be my portion of my cup and my inheritance. The Lord is going to do the work and he's going to change me. Then he comes to the point of saying, 
Now, how does this alter my thinking? Because you know Christ this morning, think about it. How does it change the way you think? How does it alter the way you live? I know it's hard for some of us to remember what it was like before Christ. The BC part of our lives. I got saved at nine, so there wasn't a lot of junk there in the first eight years. I wasn't a juvenile delinquent. I didn't commit grievous sins. I committed sins and still continue to. But but there's not this nasty past. For some of you, though, you've been saved a couple years and, and you understand the transformation like it was yesterday. What is our conviction? How do we live because of Christ? Is our conviction weak? Is our faith waver? Do, do we struggle to really depend on the Lord? When, when we quote verses 8 and verse 9 and verse 11, do, do we really want to believe them, but we're not quite there? Unless we trust in Christ alone, unless He is our sufficiency, unless He is everything, and we understand that He has absolutely transformed our lives we will not be able to honestly say what David says here. Keep your place here. Turn over to Romans chapter 5 just for a minute. Let's understand this more fully. Lord, give us wisdom now. Give us insight. Romans chapter 5. Even though we understand what this says in Psalm 16 intellectually, we have to ask ourselves this morning, is that truth the undeniable, unwavering conviction of our hearts? Because if it is, it will absolutely change the way we live. If it is not, sin will still be influential. Sin will still have control over us. Listen now. Doubt and fear will dominate us. There will be a subtle love of self that will manifest itself in a thousand different ways. Other people will see it. We'll be blind to it. We just won't be able to put our finger on why there is no power and no peace in our lives. And the only reason why that will be true is because we have not fully understood or trusted what Christ has done. Listen, it doesn't matter how long we have been saved or when we first walked that aisle or raised our hand or prayed that prayer or whatever it was, it does not matter if it's been five years or 50 years. If we don't really trust Christ, that's just an anomaly. If it hasn't changed the way we think, live, and act, if we don't have confidence and hope and security in Christ, if we are still struggling with the things that that a young child would struggle with, then we haven't really understood Christ. Now look at what Paul says here in Romans chapter 8 and verse 6. For the mind... I'm sorry, I said 5, I meant uh, 8. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on flesh is hostile toward God, For it does not subject itself to the law of God, it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, believer, this is talking to us, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. 
For if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, then the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you... I'm sorry, I read the wrong passage. Forgive me. That's the wrong passage. Go to verse chapter 5. I was right the first time. Wrote it wrong on my notes. That was a good passage of Scripture, though, wasn't it? Let's try again. Somebody did need to hear it. Let's try again. Chapter 5, verse 6. This is what I really wanted to tell you. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Amen. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone will even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, there's more, Having now been justified by his blood, we will be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more now, having been reconciled, we'll be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him whom we have now received redemption. Look at the words there. Look at the pronouns. Look at the nouns that are personal. He says, Christ. Christ, justified by his blood, saved through him, reconciled and saved through his life. We've received reconciliation through the Lord Jesus Christ. David understood it. Paul understood it. The question is, do you and I understand? Do you and I really understand that? Because if we do, and if that has really transformed our lives... And if that is our absolute hope and confidence this morning, then how, and I ask this of myself, I'm not being judgmental, I'm talking to me now, this is my own little private sermon, then how can sin still abound and reign in our lives? Then how can sin still have a place when the scripture clearly says you have been delivered and reconciled through Christ? How can self still have any place When God has said, I freed you from its control, how can we be shaken and moved and fearful when he says, I put my spirit on you as a seal of redemption and ownership? We just sang, chains be broken, lives be healed, hearts be broken. We will not be shaken. We are not moved. Is that true? Really? Are you a little shaky? A little lacking in confidence? How can we be lacking in joy and confidence when he has proven his faithfulness, when he has provided more than we ever will possibly need? Listen, if there are areas of deficiency, then it is because we have not really understood the one who is our sufficiency. Shaky faith and inconsistent obedience is a product of a poor understanding of Christ and an overpromotion of self. It means that we have not done what David does in Psalm 16:8, where he says, I have set the Lord before me. If the Lord is not before us, and we'll study it more in a second, then, then we will not have absolute confidence in the Lord. Let me ask you the most challenging question in the morning. If we sat down and talked today, and I asked you, who is Jesus Christ, and what has he done in your life? What would you say? Could you literally talk for hours about his redemption and his grace 
and His presence and His power and His faithfulness and His leading and His teaching and His sufficiency and His care and His joy. Could you say with David, I am not shaken by anything that happens in my life. My heart is glad. I rejoice in the Lord. I am secure in Him and He leads me on the path of joy and in His presence is the fullness of joy. And there are pleasures forevermore that I'm experiencing now and I know with absolute certainty that I will experience them forever because Jesus Christ is my Savior and my Lord. Now we have to be able to say that and I don't want you and I can't read your thoughts. We can't just say, oh yeah, that's how I feel if we don't because the Lord knows our hearts. He knows my heart this morning. He knows your heart. So if that isn't absolutely your reality, if that isn't the full and complete and unwavering assurance and confidence of your heart and mind this morning, then something needs to happen. And you at this point need to yield your heart over to Christ and say, enough of self and all of you. And if we do believe it, and I believe we do, then we have to be living in a way that reflects it. And when trial hits, we have to see blessed be the name of the Lord. And when blessing hits, we have to see blessed be the name of the Lord. And when, when struggle against Christianity comes, we have to say blessed be the name of the Lord. Everything needs to be distinguished by our joy and confidence and a hope that is unshakable. Now, how does that happen? Let's finish. Look at back at Psalm 16.8. How does this take place? Well, David's very clear. He says in verse 8, wonderful verse, you need to memorize it. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. Remember, the right hand is the hand of favor and blessing. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Now, what does it mean to set the Lord before you or to set the Lord before us as a church? As I read that and studied that, I immediately thought back to the Israelites in the wilderness. Being led by God's presence every day. A cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. When it moved, they moved. When it stopped, they stopped. When it descended into the tabernacle, they worshipped. That presence was their confidence, their leader, their security. Remember at the Red Sea, when they're blocked in, the presence of the Lord comes as a cloud and stands between the Egyptians and them. It led them, it secured them, it was the symbol of God's power. And I have to believe that when they first looked out of the tent flap every morning and saw that, saw that cloud standing there and realized that the Lord was still with them despite their complaining and their griping, that they were full of joy. I'm telling you, I looked at that cloud this morning and I saw the sun breaking through and I saw those rays over the lake and I was filled with joy. Not just because it's 70, but because the Lord is alive and faithful this morning. Now that phrase, what does it mean to set the Lord before me? Literally it means straight in front, conspicuously and directly ahead of me. God is not some option off to the side. He's not some convenient alternative when we need him. He's not some genie that we call on to ask him to help us. He's not someone that we neglect or repress or avoid. 
He is God, and he must be set right, conspicuously, directly in front of us, and we must follow. Now, that concept takes on an even deeper meaning. When Peter, in Acts 2, quotes this passage in his sermon at Pentecost, and he says, what David talked about in Psalm 16 is what we've just witnessed for the last three years. God in flesh. In the unscrutable mystery of the Trinity, Jesus kept the glory of the Father and the purpose of the work constantly in view. He knew that even as he took our sins to hell and deposited them there, and even as his body laid in the tomb for three days, that that was not the end result. Resurrection and victory were secured, and the plan of redemption was accomplished. And no amount of temptation, no offer of the devil, no amount of pain and agony would stop him. He had one goal. The goal was the cross. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured it. That's why he says in John chapter 5 and in John chapter 17, I did not come to do my will. I came to do the will of the Father who sent me. So Jesus, even as the one who lived among us and like us yet without sin, set the Lord, I don't understand it, I wish I did, but I won't until I get to heaven. Somehow, Jesus set the Lord before him, even though he was the Lord, he set the Lord always before him, and he did that to say, here's the example. If I can keep my heart focused, and I'm going to have to endure the cross and become sin for you, if I can keep my heart on the task that's before us and do the will of the Father that sent me, then now you have an example, believer, because I've empowered you and filled you to do that and I will never forsake you. You set the Lord before you, you put him conspicuously in front of you and you will never be disappointed. So believer this morning, Harbor Rock Tabernacle this morning, the Lord can never be to the side. Never ever to be to the side or never ever behind us. I know we've said this before, but we've got to hear it again. Conspicuously in front, leading, giving confidence, giving security, guiding, empowering. When he stops, we stop. When he goes, we go. Now look at the end result. We're done. Verses 9 and 11. Therefore, my heart is glad, my glory rejoices, my flesh also will dwell security. Go to verse 11. You will make known to me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy, and in your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Notice the bond, notice the relationship between the Lord's will and the Lord's lordship of our lives. Listen now. Notice the relationship between God's lordship and our joy. There are some people that think, if I yield to the Lord and he has control, I'm going to be miserable. He's going to send me to Africa. I love that when I was 14. If I commit to the Lord, rededicate my life for the 17th time at this camp, he's going to send me to Africa. Like That was like the ultimate torment. I have to go to Africa. Listen, it'd be harder to go to Detroit at this point. 
it's harder to go down to inner city Racine. Because people here know the truth, they just don't want to listen to it. At least people in Africa haven't heard the truth. Or if I yield my life to God, He's going to ask me to, to be committed at the church. He's going to ask me to give. He's going to ask me to take time to study His Bible and I want to watch Sports Center. When you are under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you and I are fulfilled. We are full of joy. And there are times when we'll question it, times of heartache and difficulty and trial. But the security of God's presence and His leading and His promises gives us excessive joy. That's what the word means here. In your presence is, tell me the next word. Come on. In your presence is what? Come on, you can do better than that. In your presence is what? You know what the word fullness means? It means abundance. It means God pours out excessive joy on our lives. It's not just, oh, I feel pretty good today. It's, I don't even know how to contain myself because God is so wonderful. I I don't even know how that I can sing any louder, but I'm going to try because God's so wonderful. But this is conditional. There's no fullness of joy without His presence. But when we abide in Him, there is strength and security. Listen, there is so much right now in this world that can shake us. It is easy not to feel secure. It's easy not to feel confident. It's easy not to feel joy until we remember we have an eternal inheritance with him as children of God. We have his Holy Spirit residing in us and filling us. We have his promise that he will never abandon us, never forsake us, that nothing and no one can ever take us out of his hand and that he will make known to us the path of life and he will not only be with us now, but he will be with us forever and in his abundant presence for all eternity we will experience the most absolute fullness of joy. That's that's not just words. That is true. That is true. And if you don't know that this morning, if you haven't experienced that, then listen, your heart right now needs to yield itself to the Lord. If you don't know what that means, come talk to me after the service. Come talk to Randy. Come talk to any. Just find somebody. I want to know more about that. Listen, we'll help Believer, we have the greatest truth in the world. And yet sometimes we just kind of live, okay, another day. He is faithful. He is good. He is sufficient. He will never fail us. In his presence is the fullness of joy. We praise his name. Let's pray together. Lord, you are our inheritance and our cup. You have blessed us and helped us. You have saved us and forgiven us. You've given us a new heart and a new mind. You've put your spirit within us. You'll never abandon us, never forsake us, never fail us. 
you will allow our eternal spirit to reside in hell because you are already preparing the place for us to spend eternity in your presence in the fullness of joy, not in any way because of anything we would have ever done, but only because of Christ. And Lord, we magnify and praise Jesus Christ this morning. We state in your presence that he alone is the Savior and the Lord. That he alone is the one who redeems us. That he alone is the one who has changed us. Lord, now as your children, I pray for a fresh commitment that will not waver, that we will not fall back from, that we will set you always before us conspicuously in front. That as a church, we will set you always before us. Because, Lord, we know not only that you'll be faithful and that you'll guide and direct our paths and that you'll show us the path of life, but, Lord, that when we do that, that you will fill us to the full with the abundance of joy. Lord, I need some joy this morning. My brothers and sisters need some joy this morning. It's been a hard week. There have been many challenges, and yet, Lord, we've seen you work in powerful ways. So get our minds off of us. Lord, we're so self-centered in our thinking. Get our minds off of us and fill us with your joy. We praise you for what you have done and what you will do. And, Lord, we walk forward with absolute, complete confidence in you. We will look to no other. We will not be shaken. We will not be moved. We will not depend on anybody else. We will depend on you. And you will bring the fulfillment that only you can bring. We thank you and praise you. And Lord, we love you. We pray in Jesus' name.